0: Good morning. You uh, have in your booklets the essential uh, message that I'm trying to bring. I won't be reading it exactly, although at times it'll probably seem it. Um, I'll largely follow it. My goal is to try to lay out a foundation, a biblical, uh, I'm gonna call it a biblical portrait, of what God says about men and women, not just in the church, in fact, I'm largely leaving the comments about the church to others, but in creation, in the fall, and in the redemptive patterns that the New Testament shows in terms of some of the specific commands to men and women, because I think there is a unified uh, picture, a unified portrait of what God says about men and women and the way that they're to relate. The problem is that the great tension has occurred, especially in the last 60 years in the home and in society and in the church uh, about men and women and specifically I believe that a lot of it really is related, not completely, but a great deal of it is related to ways that women have been marginalized, uh, ways that women have been mistreated, dominated. And equal treatment under the law has often been withheld and thankfully our culture has been trying over there, especially the last 60 years, to try to right many of those wrongs, to change laws that needed to be changed, to change some perspectives that needed to be changed. Um, when I think particularly, I've been involved with many women who have undergone abuse, and to see men begin to be held accountable for various abuses, I think that's a good thing in large measure. It's intended to be a writing a of wrongs, and I think those are good things. Um, even so, I, I believe that in the past 60 years not all the role discussions and all the changes about the way men and women have related have been for good. Um, in addition to these needed changes that have taken place. There have also been, I believe, an increasingly unbiblical view of men and women, of the family, and of the church. And um, I think we, over the course of time, have lost some discernment. Much of it was an effort to address things that were wrong, which is a good thing, but sometimes what happens is we throw the baby out with the bathwater. Sometimes we see a bad thing, and then we're so interested in making it right that we actually do something potentially even worse. I'm not going to try to resolve all the tension between the sexes or correct all the ways women have been harmed or uh, address all the ways that we have departed from biblical teaching. But if we can see in creation, see in the fall, and see in the redemptive pattern God has laid out, a portrait that's consistent, um, I think we can go a long way to saying, wow, maybe God really does have a, a foundational intention that he's trying to communicate to men and women. Um, in spite of the difficulty that we encounter in the church and out of the church, but the, in spite of the difficulties that we see about the way that men and women have tried to wrestle with these role issues, um, I'm confident that the Bible. Makes plain that Jesus is our Redeemer. He has bought us back and he's, he's bought us back from the places sin has taken us. And He's done it with the express purpose of putting us back under His righteous rule. So if there are ways that I've fallen short, if there are ways you've fallen short in the way you view men or the way you view women or the way you view this whole issue, the Lord Jesus' intent is not to say story over. He's just saying, I'm going to show you where sin misleads you, and I'm going to restore you. And for the ready heart, I hope that's what happens in the church. Let's, let's first look at creation. Let's, let's first look at um, what we see in creation. You know, we, we don't have the time to read all these passages. I'm going to actually read typically just a short portion of a passage, but I've written in the booklet where I'm coming from so that you can look at them, and many of them, most of them, you're familiar with. If we were to look at Genesis 1, for example, we would see a picture of creation that is known as a telescopic view. It's the big picture, you know? It's this big picture of all that God did in creation. And if we were to just look at the few verses in 26 through 28 where he talks about creation of men and women, uh, we don't see any difference between them in the sense that it says he, he made man in his image, male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and told them to fill the earth and subdue it. So that's all we get. We get a very, what I would say, chapter 1 is kind of a picture of the real equality between men and women in the sense that we're all made in the image of God. But beginning in chapter 2, we also see, I believe, roles. And where it starts out, it is not, a lot of us who have spent a lot more time in the New Testament are used to God commanding something specific, do this, do this and commanding something against something else, don't do this. We tend to sometimes think of the instructions of God as always being didactic. Authority speaks down and says, do this, don't do this. It's, it's much more that way, and certainly that is in the Bible. But the vast majority of the scripture isn't that way. So much of the scripture is pictures that God paints, and, and he, he provides enough teaching and instruction in them for us to know what he's teaching. But there are so many ways he paints pictures. For example, I'm just going to read a little bit from Genesis chapter 2, where we begin to see these differences, I think, show up. Then the Lord God, verse 7, says that the man was made first. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate and keep it, verse 15. Verse 15. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat it you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make him a helper suitable for him. And he, the Lord forms every beast of the field and brings them to the man, and the man gives names to all of them. But for Adam was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib he had taken from the man, brought her to the man. And the man said, This now is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Well, we have this equality implied in, in chapter 1, uh, where mankind is made in God's image, male and female. But a distinction of roles shows up in this kind of way. For starters, we read that the man was made first. Um, in verse 7, while it doesn't say outright that being made first matters, in the Middle East and in virtually every culture until this more... Um, democratic republic that we're in, and really just especially in the last 100 years, that idea of primogeniture, the firstborn, while that has mattered in virtually every culture throughout human history, it matters less right now in our, in our world, but being made first actually does mean something. There's something that is attached to that. If you will, there's a, um, a determined position and rank and inheritance in almost every culture. And we're gonna see some of that unfold as we continue to read. The next thing we see is that before the woman was created, God gives the man a physical responsibility. He gives him the responsibility to cultivate and keep the garden, in verse 15, which is going to be the primary realm where he works and manages the dominion that God's given him, as well as the means by which he provides for the family's physical needs. Cultivate translates a word, habad, which means to work or care for. It's a hands-on kind of a word. And keep translates a Hebrew word shamar, which means to oversee, manage. It has kind of a protecting element, if you will. In that assignment, before the fall or before the woman, the man was to work the ground and manage it so that it would provide for their needs. Then, still before the woman was created, God gives the man a spiritual responsibility. He is told that he may eat from any tree of the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lest he die. Uh, We're going to see that spiritual responsibility addressed very shortly, uh, as well as in the New Testament. And finally, in this section, he's assigned the responsibility of naming the animals, and then he names his wife. We see that in chapter 2, verse 23, where he says she shall be called woman because she's taken out of man. She shall be Isha because she is from Ish. And then we see that happen again in chapter 3 and verse 21 when he names her Eve. Like primogenitor, naming in most cultures has always been a mark of headship or leadership. And by itself, I'm not suggesting that being born first or naming automatically conveys roles, but they do illustrate them. Now, it's true that other cultures would very quickly say, yes, that's proof Um, I, I would say in our day, if we didn't have any more instruction about roles, yeah, maybe there's a head nod towards the possibility of leadership on the part of the man by being born first or by being created first and by naming his wife, but I think we would need more to be able to teach it, and I think we have that. Regarding the creation of the woman, we read, because it was not good that the man be alone, the woman was made, and she was declared suitable for him. And lest we think this is just sort of a a description without meaning, it just so happens that the man was alone, it wasn't good, God made somebody suitable, lest we miss that, in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse nine, this is picked up, where we read, man was not made for the woman's sake, but woman was made for the man. So we have to do something with that. Again, if that's the only verse I had, I wouldn't make a case for roles but if it weaves together with the portrait God plays as well as the direct teaching, then I realize, oh my goodness, God was weaving together a tapestry of roles. The next thing we see is that God assigns the man the responsibility of leaving his father and mother and joining to his wife. Many times we overlook this, because of course a woman, when she gets married, is also leaving her father and mother, Uh, so it's not that that the woman doesn't do that, But the burden for it, according to the scripture, says that the man is to leave his father and mother, the man is to cleave to his wife. I believe that's a picture of the fact that the primary burden for launching out into a new home is the man's. That's something that's not seen in our day. There are a lot of young men today who don't understand that they have the primary burden of being able to say, yes, I'm leaving my father and mother, and yes, she's leaving her father and mother, But I need to take a lead in this, and not only do I take a lead in leaving, uh, meaning a primary responsibility for helping establish this new home we have, but I'm also to take the primary responsibility in cleaving. You see, in our day, very many men don't understand that for marital unity to take place, one of the requirements was that he would pursue her. He would cleave to her he would draw near her. That's not that she doesn't do that to him, but the primary burden in creation was not for her to be the one to make that happen. And I'll tell you, that's been one of the areas that we have dropped the ball the most in the church among many men uh, today, is that many of us have taken for granted what we have if we happen to be married, and we've failed to take a burden that was given to commanded to the man. You are the one who takes the lead on this. Now, um, again, these passages don't lay out a law, like here are your roles, but they're showing something. They're showing the man being made first. They're showing him with the responsibility to tend and keep, provide. They show him the spiritual leadership responsibility of of what he's supposed to do with regard to eating. And then a a type of headship with the woman, which is implied not only by being made first and by naming her and by the fact that he takes the primary role in leading, um, but Other scripture that we're going to continue to see, there is this movement on God's part um, to, to provide these roles. Now, some scholars would say that the sex and role distinctions that you see in Genesis 2 and even Genesis 3 are just descriptive. In other words, they say there's no meaning to it. It just happens to be that the man was made first, it just happens to be that the man named. It just happens to be that. God told the man to do this in the garden, and he just happened to make the woman. He could have done it the other way around, and he could have. That's certainly a point, but he didn't. And if there is more instruction coming up that fleshes this out even more, I think we have good reason to think there really is a picture of headship that is laid out and a role of what happens between the man and the woman. And I think then, if that's the case, these things are not merely descriptive. They also are prescriptive. By the way, I do think it's interesting that they will become one flesh is for both the man and the woman. That is, the emotional unity and the physical unity of the marriage is something that God lays on both men and women. It's something we're to build together. He could have said, now it's on the man to make this happen or it's on the woman to make this happen. He doesn't do that. That the man and his wife shall be one flesh. And that's not merely talking about physical intimacy. It's talking about a heart of unity. It's something that's, that one flesh is pictured in the sexual relationship, but that's just the picture of it. It's really, does the man, and we're gonna see this shortly, does the man relate to his wife in such a way, and does the wife relate to her husband in such a way that they become more and more one? That's exactly what God intended. Those are some of the pictures that we see about roles within creation. Let's look at the fall. Uh, We'll look at the fall, and again, you guys are familiar with it, and I won't read the whole chapter of of, uh, Genesis 3, but I'd like to suggest that there are lots of pictures of roles that show up here. To begin with, it's worthy to note that the devil went after Eve first. He didn't go after the man. And we can ask the question, is that intentional and role-related, or is it just a coincidence? Based on what we're going to see in just a moment, and based on 1 Timothy 2, 12 through 14, I think it was intentional and role-related. As soon as sin comes, and the man and the woman try to avoid God, Genesis 3, verses 9 through 12, says that God called the man out first. He could have called out the woman like Satan did. After all, the woman took the fruit first. Or he could have called both of them out since they both took part but he first calls to the man with a singular masculine pronoun and asks three questions where are you who told you you were naked have you eaten from the tree i told you not to eat this is a one-on-one with the man the woman's right there and he will talk to her in a moment but he's carrying this out to the woman. And and lest we think that this is merely descriptive of what happened, which again, many of the scholars say that's just a description of the record of what happened. It's kind of a culturally imbued sort of a thing. Here's the thing. Um, What does the New Testament say about the very same event? Romans chapter 5 tells us that sin came into the world through one man. In fact, it says it came through one man and names him Adam, and in these few verses, the Bible refers nine times to the man through whom sin came, and never once mentions the woman. I think that's more than incidental. When the man is mentioned repeatedly, and then Jesus is referred to as the second Adam, there's a a spiritual parallel that he's making Just like there's a spiritual parallel later in the book of Ephesians in chapter 5 when we look at the parallel of the man, what he's to be like Christ, uh, and the woman like the church in terms of their relationship. But the point I'm making is the spiritual leadership that God imbued the man with by making him first, by giving him the responsibility of naming, by um, commanding him of what not to do before the woman was even there, is being born out here, he's carrying it out with the man. Now by saying this, I'm not saying that the woman didn't sin. I'm just saying that because of roles assigned by God, which God has not already laid out didactically, but he has shown by portrait, and that he talks about didactically later, the man is the one held responsible for the sin that passed on to the world. And it's because of his leadership role. In his response, I think this is so interesting. Again, we can look at it and just say, well, it's just the way it happened. I just think it's so, it's so much like God to show deep truths in small responses. The man, in his response to God, blames his wife and indirectly blames God. He says, the woman you gave me, she took from the fruit and gave it to me, and I ate. I don't think that's merely a thorough answer. I don't think that's just him saying, let me tell you all the facts, God. It's, I, I'm totally neutral on what you do with this. I think there's an intention to move the spotlight off of him. Because the spotlight is clearly on him, and he wants it on the woman, and he wants a little bit of it to be diffused over to God. It's kind of like, I'll take 25% of the blame, God, but I think you need to take 25%, and I think that lady really probably needs the rest. And, and here's the thing. In the man's role to lead, protect, and provide for his wife, if that's if his assignment is that, and if we see that continue to be supported throughout the Bible... Such that by the time we get to the New Testament, we can say, wow, there is a clear portrait laid out here. It should be no surprise to us that the minute sin comes into the world, the man's going to be the exact opposite of all of that. You look at what the man does here, and he throws her under the bus. He's willing to sacrifice her. How many times in the middle of an argument between a husband and a wife are we as men inclined not to look at our own heart? but to look at her heart, to look at how we can shift the blame over here, because we're not beginning first with ourselves, which is precisely what a spiritual leader is supposed to do. Notice the next thing that further delineates roles. When God speaks judgment on the woman, notice where he speaks the judgment. I will multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. The temporal judgment of sin will be something she would uniquely experience in the context of being a woman, uniquely in her roles as a woman. She'll be affected through the pain of childbirth. She will desire, whatever that is, we'll get to that in a minute, her husband. She will be ruled by, whatever that is, and we'll get to that in a moment. None of those could be applied to a man. That is to say that the specific ways God pronounces a judgment on the woman are going to be experienced in the context of her role as a woman, these hardships that she is to experience reveal her role is accentuated even more when we look at the first, two, first of two words in this prophetic judgment. When God says, Your desire will be for your husband, that English word uh, desire is from a Hebrew word, teshuga, which can be translated there. Typically, commentators will give three translations to it. Um, A a Hebrew scholar, Susan T. Foe, showed 50 years ago that one of the best interpretations, and particularly in this context that it fits best, is a desire to control. In fact, that's how the New Living Translation translates that word. Um, Part of the support for that, not only does it fit in Genesis 2, but in the very next chapter, God says to Cain, sin's desire is for you, but you must master it. You notice the, a parallel structure, sin's desire is for you, conversely, you must master it. Now back to Genesis chapter 3, your desire will be for him and he will rule over you. And some people will write, they'll say, you see, headship was never required before the fall. Uh, it was it. Headship was a judgment on the woman. That's not true. How we know that is when it says rule, it's not talking about a position. That particular word, massal, is a unique word, and what it has to do with is harshness and dominion. It would be similar to our word, abuse. So it wouldn't be out of character if God said, your desire will be to control him, but he will end up abuse, being abusive towards you. Now, God's not saying that's what he wants, he's saying this will be the result of sin. And part of the proof of that is going to be what we're going to see in the New Testament in just a moment. So we have this idea of a woman being tempted to control her husband and a husband being tempted to massal his wife, to, to uh, dominate her harshly. So what we have in creation is that the, God made the man first, a picture of position. He gave him the responsibility to work the land and manage it, a picture of provision. He gave him the command about eating and not eating, a picture of spiritual responsibility. He, made the woman to help the man in aloneness and in bearing children, showing a role of service and nurture. God gave the man responsibility to name her, a picture of headship. He gave the man responsibility to leave father and mother and cleave to his wife, a picture of leading the two of them towards a new home that they would build together and giving tender care to her. That cleaving is that idea of the fact that he's caring for her and moving towards her in unity. And then God gives both of them a responsibility to be one flesh but following sin, God holds the man spiritually responsible for the sin. The woman's consequence from the fall will involve her role as a childbearer and her role as a wife to a husband. The man's consequence from the fall will involve this battle for control with his wife and frustrating strain in his work. Here's what happens. The roles that were designed by God to actually be edifying and God honoring instead come out distorted that's going to be even more apparent when we see the last section, the section on redemption. We're going to see not only the distortion, uh, but we're going to also see the fact that God is trying to right things. He, Through the redemption, he's trying to bring us back to more of the created order. By the way, before you see roles in the New Testament, remember something. The passage most often used as we move on to redemption, the final section in this, as we move towards the roles of women and men, and we often would look at Ephesians chapter 5, 22 through 33, remember something. That passage actually begins with Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1 that says, imitate God as dearly beloved children. And even more in the context, it follows on the heels of Ephesians 5, 21 that says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. As a matter of fact, that... 521 is actually the headstone for everything that follows. So what you've got, before we get into the roles that are talked about in the New Testament, let's remember this. Just like Genesis 1 shows an equality of nature, so too in the New Testament we see an equality. We see be imitators of God as dearly beloved children and submit yourselves one to the other or subject yourselves one to the other. Now the role of how the man subjects himself is different than how the woman does. So it's not saying it's merely a mutual submission society as if there is no role, because let's see what the text tells us. Reading from Ephesians 5.23, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. Remember, this is not massal. This is, this is a role. It reflects the 1 Timothy 3 principle, where we see that the man is responsible to manage this household well, that is, to shamar his own family and home. That reminds us, in turn, of 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, where we read, Christ is the head of every man, the man is the head of a woman, not saying that every man is the head of every woman, but a man is the head of a woman if he is married, and God is the head of Christ. Each of those statements reveals the man's position as head over his wife and household, not as an arbitrary new commandment, but as clear continuation of biblical instruction ever since creation. By the way, I love how 1 Corinthians 11 provides two corrections in this area of headship. One to the man, one to the woman. The the correction to the man is, notice it says, Christ is the head of the man. Which means before the man goes strutting his stuff and thinking, I'm something because I'm appointed to be head in the area of marriage, he better recognize he's under someone else's authority. That's meant to humble him right from the get-go. But there's also a correction for the woman. Lest she think that because her husband is described as her head, that she thinks she's in a diminutive position, that she's in an insignificant position, that somehow she's not his equal, the very same passage says, and God is the head of Christ. Same language. What it's saying is, just as Jesus submits himself to the father, so too a wife is to submit herself to their husband. It's part of a created order reflecting the image of God. It's a good thing, it's not a bad thing. These declarative statements about the identity and responsibility of the man and woman are consistent throughout the New Testament. And this is so important, don't lose this. They are the very opposite of what the fall would have induced them towards naturally. The fall inclines the man to dominate harshly or to back away from his responsibility. The fall inclines the woman to try to control her husband. But in the face of those inclinations, she is to do just the opposite. She is to subject herself in the fear of Christ. To her own husband is to the Lord, verses 21-22. She is to, as the church is subject to Christ, let the wives be subject to their husbands in everything. Not in sin. Acts chapter 5, verses 1-9 through make that clear. In the case of Ananias and Sapphira, she's not to subject herself to her husband in sin. Similarly, Peter says, be submissive to your husbands so that even if they are disobedient to the word, they might be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. This is a consistent message. And in the face of his instincts to dominate or to back away, to kind of avoid um, uh, conflict or failure, the New Testament commands him in the exact opposite direction, to live with her in an understanding way. That's the opposite of Masal, to treat her as a weaker vessel. And it's it's clearly not saying, so look down upon her, because the very next phrase is, and treat her as a co-heir of the grace of life. And the warning is, if you don't do that, your prayers will be hindered. What God is saying is, if you ask me to answer your prayers, I'm living with you in an understanding way. I'm listening to you. I'm treating you as someone weaker because I could squish you. And I'm treating you as my child. You're, You're connected to my son. You can't do that with your wife. Why in the world would I honor your prayers? I'm asking you to do something far easier than what I do. But each of those is the opposite of what happens because of the fall. What's more, if a man were really to treat his wife like he is called to in the New Testament, and which really is a reflection of the created order, if he were to treat her as an equal, whom he wants to know and protect and cherish and love and sacrifice himself for, he would actually be restoring the original design that God made him for, to be a protective head, a loving leader, a cleaving lover, and a friend. When we get to the church, we're going to see that this pattern of men leading, such as elders are are men, teachers in the congregation are men, that's going to continue, not as a new thought or afterthought, but as the continuation of God's revealed plan for men and women in community. I'm going to leave room for others to speak to the direct implications for women in the church. Um, For example, we're going to see 1 Timothy 2, 12 through 14, and 1 Corinthians 14, 34. Women are not to teach or exercise authority over men in the church, but to be silent which I think refers to spiritual speech in the formal assembly of believers. My job has just been to show that God has designed roles for men and women from the beginning, that they're reflected in the created order and the creation responsibilities. Those roles are accentuated and made even more evident in the account of the fall, how it happened, who did what, how God judged it, what happened as a result of the fall. And the New Testament continues that same tradition with instructions to men and women in the home that are a direct antidote to the effects of the fall and a direct effort to reestablish the creation purposes of men and women. As Mark and others will address women's roles in the body of Christ, they're going to show the New Testament instructions of the church are consistent with the creation, fall, and redemption pattern. They're not arbitrary. They're not outdated. They're a continuation of the redemptive plan of God, doing through the church what he is doing in the family as part of his self-revelation to the world.